I think at the end of the day, you want to just find people that are supportive and caring and may have an interest that you have and ask them to, to mentor you. That's, that's the advice I would give. And never be shy. It's easy to say, but if you just say, what have I got to lose? What have you got to lose? On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from Genentech oncologist and melanoma patient, Dr. Ellie Gardino. Dr. Gardino explains her experience with death as a child, finding fun despite the pressure in her home life, her experience treating patients, and her own sickness. She's hands down the toughest and most inspirational woman I've ever known. Ellie, thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to our discussion. I am too. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about your day-to-day life. You spend your days finding the cure to cancer and as seen in your team's improvement of drugs like Herceptin and the development of new drugs. Can you tell us what a day is like? Absolutely. I think over the last several years, I've had a lot of varied experiences between patient care and the work I do at Stanford and have done throughout my career in seeing patients with breast cancer and having the opportunity to experience those relationships and support people as they go through cancer therapies, as well as developing new therapies and the work that I do as a researcher, both at Stanford and at Genentech. This could mean that we're working on strategies that allow us to design a clinical trial that could then be validating a new drug, an experimental therapy for cancer, bringing that to all the way through to patients and designing the execution of the trial where it's going to be run globally across the world, working with health authorities, including the FDA, European health authorities, to discuss clinical trial results and the importance of those results for patients that could be receiving these new therapies as well as looking at the biology, trying to understand immune therapies and predict uh, new biomarkers that could be used for developing a new therapy, the development of drugs that some of the design and development is done at Genentech itself, some at Stanford. It's been a wild career for me and a great deal of fun and quite varied. So I don't think any one day is like the next, but it's all intended to be to develop new curative therapies for cancer. Can you talk about any major accomplishments that you've had in this department? Sure. I think the major accomplishments, if you look at perhaps I view as one of the biggest accomplishments for me in my career has just been caring for patients, to be honest. So while I've developed new therapies that have been impactful for millions, the impact that you have on one person's life is incredible. And that has been one of my major successes, I would say, as a breast cancer oncologist. But, you know, in terms of really tremendous impacts for new therapies that I brought to the market, Cadsila is a drug that I designed the phase three clinical trial. It's a HER2 positive antibody drug conjugate. So basically it's an antibody that binds to the HER2 receptor on breast cancer cells, and it delivers a payload where it delivers a a toxin or a, you know, with the equivalent of a chemotherapy that will kill the cell from the inside out. So 
It's almost like the Trojan horse, if you want to think about it in that way, where you're able to select the cancer cells specifically with the antibody and then target not only an immunotherapy using the antibody, but at the same time targeting a toxin or payload that will kill the cell once it identifies the cell directly. I was new to the team when I came to Genentech. They had had a what's called a refusal to file from the FDA, meaning that the FDA had told Genentech that they were not going to use the phase two data, which is a earlier clinical trial that had very promising data for this new therapy, but it wasn't enough. The FDA didn't feel that it was enough to warrant having the drug approved for patients. This is very unfortunate. A lot of patients were very disappointed by this decision by the FDA. And I came in at that time to redesign the clinical trials to develop a phase three study that had a survival benefit and worked closely with the FDA, the European health authorities, to change the outcome. And essentially, we reworked all of our plans, redesigned the clinical trial, and were able to show a tremendous success using this antibody drug conjugate, which was a very novel approach for cancer therapy and showed tremendous success so that patients could actually get the drug and benefit from this drug. So in making these amazing drugs, how do you kind of stay organized with all this work? Well, I'm very fortunate to have a great team. So I'm also have really smart scientists and biostatisticians and a great team that support me. And whether that's at Stanford and the research I've done at Stanford or at Genentech, that definitely helps. But certainly there are many times that I don't feel organized and days like today when I feel tired just because of the treatment I'm on and the what I'm going through from the standpoint of the having cancer. But you just have to focus on one thing at a time, prioritize. And prioritizing is critical to then ensuring that you get done at least you know, the two or three highest importance items for your day. So that's what I focus on. You know, I make sure that I'm I'm going in with a plan and a priority and I try to stay as organized as I can in that way. Now that we've kind of talked about what a day is like, let's kind of go back to your childhood. So you're born in California to Anne and Richard Grillo. What was life like at home for you? So my father was very strict. He had very high expectations for all of his children. And I would say that that was a tough environment to be in at times, but it also taught me, you know, it taught me to be regimented. He taught us to be scientific, to always be evidence-based. He really pushed his children very hard, which I think, you know, really turned me into the person I am currently. But we used to have to stand at attention in order of age. And we all had to, we had to get straight A's or we wouldn't be able to go out on a weekend. We had to do homework with my father, take his class if we didn't get the grades that he thought that we should. So it wasn't the easiest environment to be in, taking history from your dad because, you know, on a weekend when your friends were all going out was not always easy. So that was the environment that I grew up in. And at the same time, you know, I I had fun. You know, I had a lot of friends that made my experience in high school better with a lot of laughter and joking. And so I could leave the environment that, you know, that strict environment and 
you know, have a easier environment with friendships. And I don't want it to all sound bad. You know, I don't want it to sound that bad. My father also was a gamesman. So he taught us strategy. He taught us, you know, we played backgammon. We played poker. We stayed up until four in the morning because he was up with all the Stanford, his brothers and sisters-in-law who are at Stanford and played games till three in the morning, but that was kind of expected. We weren't really allowed to go to bed until everyone else went to bed. So it was just kind of a, a different environment that I think most people were brought up in, but that definitely shaped who I am currently. Hardworking, but at the same time, you know, like to enjoy life. Can you talk about the relationship you kind of had with your siblings and what effect that had on you? I had a very close relationship with my siblings, even though my brothers used to pick on me. They were both very, we were all very close. My sister and I, Linda was my best friend growing up and we're all one year apart. But I think overall, the siblings were all very close. And part of it probably was the fact that my father was so strict that it actually made it easier for us to bond and be friends because it was almost like, you know, the five musketeers kind of had to stay together in order to survive that environment. So I think overall, my brother Joe used to tutor me or my dad would make him tutor me, which is kind of funny. He'd always say, oh, Ellie's never going to pass this class and don't make her take any more math because she's never going to be able to do it. And then I'd get an A and he wouldn't understand how I could get an A. But we laughed and we spent time together and I think had a, had a pretty strong friendship overall. Would you say that your parents' strictness affected your relationship with them or were you still really close with them as well? Definitely affected my relationship with them, but I had a lot of respect for my dad. I think that he, some of it was done to, you know, to make us tougher, but also, you know, it sounds crazy that we were standing at attention and that he would have that kind of an environment for us, but he also was a joker. He was trying to build resilience into us. You know, I remember one time he made me sit and my brother's one year older than me. And so, of course, you know, in high school, you have the crushes on, you know, the your brother's um, friends that are in the class above you. And my brother played baseball. I'll never forget my dad made me sit in the middle of the baseball field when he was playing baseball to study his history class with him. So somehow that to me was about resilience. And he specifically did it because he didn't like that I was embarrassed or that I... I was embarrassed around my brother's friends and he knew that made me uncomfortable. So he, he felt that he was building resilience. Now, whether that did, did that or not, I don't know. But, you know, I, I still have a lot of respect for my dad and I had a good relationship with him. Do you have any stories from kind of your time with your family that you feel played a major role in kind of your development and who you are now as a person? Sure. When I was 15, you know, my best friend from growing up had a twin. So her name is Martha and her twin brother was John. And John was best friends with my brother, Joe. So we all kind of ran in a pack. We all were buddies. So it was my sister, Linda, and my brother, Joe, and myself, and my friend, Martha. And when I was 15, and Martha and John, who were twins, were 16, he developed a brain tumor and a glioblastoma specifically. And he died of his disease. And at the time, of course, you know, it was just hard to understand how a 16-year-old could have a brain tumor and die within a very short period of time. But I was there to support my friend. And I stayed, I 
basically lived with her for about six months uh, and spent a lot of time. She was very distraught, and her mom was understandably very concerned for her. And we went to two different high schools, and I would go to school at the local Los Altos High, and she went to St. Francis. And I remember one day coming in late, and the teacher used to mock me every single morning, you know, that I would come in and say, oh, you must be in the smoker's corner or, you know, just make fun of me basically in front of the whole class for coming in late because he didn't like that I would come in late to his classroom. And I would just take it. It was like he was bullying me and I would just take it. And then I remember one morning just going up and telling him afterwards and saying, you know, after class, I've never been in the smoker's corner. I don't even know what that is because I came from St. Nick and from a Catholic school and was new to this um, public high school. And the reason I'm late is because I'm, you know, helping my friend who just lost her brother from cancer. And he never bullied me again after that. But I did learn to stick up for myself. And I hope that he also learned that you should assume positive intent and and not make assumptions about people. But that was something that definitely had an impact on me. That whole experience had an impact on me. She also lost her dad when he was 40. And she lost another brother a little bit later. And they ended up having a genetic disorder that, you know, was causing these cancers. And we sorted that out later. At the time, you couldn't identify the gene that was causing the cancers to occur. But now we understand what this disease is. And I'm sure that that experience impacted me and shaped, you know, my decisions to go and do cancer research ultimately. My grandmother also died really recently after that from cancer. So, you know, all of that together, I'm sure was a pretty significant impact on me as a person. But my journey wasn't straightforward. I don't want you to think that Okay, just because my dad pushed us to get straight A's and, you know, that everything was easy. I think I did go to UCLA and I, I had worked a lot of my time during high school. I had worked with autistic kids and I thought I was actually going to be a psychologist and work on autism for my career. And I went to UCLA specifically to do that. But then, you know, ultimately, you know, some of these other experiences probably helped me to change my mind over time. But I didn't expect to go to medical school. I didn't have all of the classes or the grades to be able to get into medical school. And I took a very different approach. I ended up taking a few years after I finished college and, and doing research and so that I go down a different path and have a different resume, so to speak, for applying to medical school. And ultimately, the first time I applied, I didn't get in. And so I think it's important you know, to recognize that even individuals who seem incredibly successful, that the path isn't straight. It's not like, you know, it's straightforward or straight or perfect. Life is just not that way. And you can always get where you want to be if you decide you want to, you know, want to. You just have to, you know, put your mind to it and realize that there's a lot of different ways of getting to where you want to be. So ultimately, I did this additional time with research. I took some classes at the local college and I was able to, you know, to get a great grant and to go to get my MD and my PhD. But that wasn't a straight path by any means. And so what I tell Nick and, you know, other kids thinking about medical school or graduate school, you shouldn't worry about how 
you get there. It's just that if you want it and you want it bad enough, there's a way of figuring out how to do it. Back to kind of your family again. Do you have any regrets with regard to kind of your your relationship with your family or your family life? I've been pretty fortunate that I had good relationships with most of my family. I can't think of any real regret that I have. I mean, I think that my father rubbed my siblings, you know, wrong in a lot of ways, but I never really had anger or frustration toward my dad. You know, I have had good friendships with all my siblings. So, yeah, of course, you know, we have fights or the typical issues, but I don't really have any regrets that I can think of. So now let's move to your time in high school. Like you said, you attended Los Altos High School. Can you just talk about what school was like for you, kind of how you did your relationships with your friends, with teachers? Sure. So when I went into Los Altos High School, it actually was very difficult for me because I went from St. Nicholas, where it was a really small school, and my two older sisters had gone to St. Francis, which is the the high school that St. Nicholas feeds into automatically. And between my dad and who he was, always pushing the boundaries and anti-establishment, he's kind of an anti-establishment type of guy. And my sisters who would throw parties and were kind of getting in trouble, they didn't really want another one of the five of us to go to that school. So my brother, who's number three, Joe, so Cindy, Linda, Joe, then myself, I'm number four, and we're all a year apart. My brother Joe was not able to go there. And even though I had really good grades, I was a good kid and never got into trouble in elementary school, they didn't accept me. So I didn't really understand why they didn't accept me. And my parents had to sort of explain that they just really didn't want another one of us to go to the school. So I went to Los Altos. I didn't know anyone. There was only like two people from my class who who went there and the other person I wasn't friends with. And so they put me into remedial classes, actually. So they didn't know who I was as a student. So Los Altos just automatically, the counselor just put me into into like the lowest level classes. And when I asked them why they did that and I had to advocate for myself, they, you know, they said, why would you want the hard classes anyway? You know, why don't you just have fun in school? And and the counselor was just not like the counselors that we have currently and that you're used to. So ultimately, over time, I was able to to show I was capable of doing well in harder classes, and I did move my way up. But that was something I had to prove myself. It was also hard not to have a group of friends when you went in and started as a freshman. When the feeder schools, you know, a lot of the kids knew each other. So it took me a while to navigate that, you know, and I think you learn to be resilient because you, it's not always perfect, right? I remember trying out to be a cheerleader and all the girls knew each other and I didn't get a spot. And that was something that I really wanted to do because I wanted to be popular and I wanted to be social and didn't work out for me. So I found my niche. I found my friends and I, you know, I figured out how to navigate and show that I could do more than they expected of me. But I don't think anyone's high school experience is perfect. And then I shared with you the challenges that I had with my friend. And, you know, and I think I struggled a lot I, after I had the death of my friend who had cancer, just trying to understand why would someone die at, at 16. And I did a lot of reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross about death and dying. And, 
you know, it was really a time for me to try to figure out why the world was the way it was. And so I probably learned a lot of resilience during during that period of time. And that probably shaped me to a large degree into who I am. But no high school experience is easy for anyone. I mean, I learned that even the most popular kids were not always happy, you know, that you realize there was this facade and it wasn't real life. And once you got to know those kids and you just kind of let the walls fall down and get to know people, then you realize that everybody's kind of the same boat and and that helps, you know, to have the ability to just be who you are and show who you are. When you were talking about your time, you talked about cheerleading. When you didn't make the cheerleading team, what other things did you find yourself, what other hobbies did you find yourself doing? Well, I loved photography. It's interesting now that you asked that. I haven't thought about it in a long time because Joey likes photography. So my son is actually pretty interested in maybe some of that he got from me. So I did a lot of photography during high school. I like my friends. You know, I worked quite a bit. So I actually, I had three different jobs during high school. I worked in a clothing store. I worked with the autistic kids and I actually got paid for that in the afternoons after school. So that was nice that I... Not only did I love doing it, but I also had it as a job. And then I had, you know, odds and ends of other jobs. I actually worked at a liquor store for a while. I don't know how you can do that in high school, but during my my day, you could. So holding down, you know, having my own opportunities to work and making money. I bought a car for myself when I was 17. And my parents said, because we only had one station wagon that we shared with my mom and the five kids, basically. So, and I think my dad kind of did that purposefully. It wasn't that we couldn't afford it. It was, you know, that I think he was trying to show that you need to learn to share and figure things out. And that was all part of his, you know, resilience plan. But that certainly wasn't in my plan. And so I decided that I was going to make enough money that I could buy my own car. And then he said, you had to buy your own insurance. So I learned to make enough money to buy my own insurance. I didn't really like that my dad was, you know, dictating to me or controlling. I think that's part of it. It was like learning, you know, you didn't want to be controlled by someone. And my dad was certainly someone who liked to control you. So, you know, I learned to to be totally independent. And so I don't know why the car, it was, it's not really a hobby, but it definitely gave me the independence to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And, you know, and so outside of working and I was on every sports team, but nothing serious, you know, nothing that I brought to college. But I would say the the main thing for me was actually the work that I did with autistic kids, which was pretty amazing, actually. You know, I'd go and work with these kids after school and they were, many of them were quite violent. So, you know, you have to like learn to handle handle these kids when they would get aggressive. And we were trying to, the higher functioning kids, we'd try to take places, teach them to go on the bus, teach them to have a social interaction. We'd take them bowling. We'd, you know, take them to my house and I'd like bring them and make cookies with these kids. And anyway, I don't know. I don't, the ones that were higher functioning, but otherwise we were over at this school called Springer School, which is in Los Altos. And in the afternoon that I was doing the afternoon program with these kids. And then I learned, I did some work with someone named Bryna Siegel who does early diagnoses of autism, and she's at Stanford. And so I learned a lot from those experiences. But that was my hobby, I guess, if you want to call it that. From this work with the autistic kids, did you kind of learn anything about yourself or develop any values that you see reflected through the rest of your life? 
I think I, I certainly was appreciative for the fact that I was healthy. And, you know, between all these experiences, you know, being very grateful for what you actually have is something I, I definitely learned. I learned to be a pretty strong person because I could handle situations that were, it was surprising that, you know, at my age that I was able to open and close a store, for example, you know, with the running of the store, the clothing store, that I could manage to work with these kids that were, you know, that generally now I would think a specialist is doing a lot of that. So I had a lot of opportunities to work with people or the autistic patients, and I don't want to call them patients, but autistic people or autistic kids that really needed that support. And that was, you know, a maturity that that gave me was pretty tremendous. So with your father kind of being like this discipline force in your life, where did you find mentors to kind of teach you other aspects of the world? It's a great question. I had a great mentor in college, you know, great mentorship in the three years after college. I had an incredible mentor there. In high school, I think it was a little bit harder to find the mentors, but I still would say that my dad was a mentor. <laughs> Even though he was a disciplinarian, he was a mentor. And I would bring, you know, my papers to him and get his advice. I would bring questions to him and get his advice. I had a great deal of respect for him. I think that he helped me tremendously. And within high school, I had a couple of teachers that I had a biology teacher that we climbed Mount Whitney um, two summers in a row. We did back, this backpacking trip that he took um, students on, and he was a great mentor for many of us. There was about 15 kids that went on that, on that trip, and we hiked up the John Muir Trail. And, and that, you know, another opportunity to, you know, to really become resilient, strong, and learn to push yourself so that was a, quite an experience. But I think there may not have been as many mentors as we would like to see for students. And I shared the experience that I had going in to high school and not really having people who didn't really know me, how lonely that felt, you know, to, to go in and be sort of misjudged, to be considered a kid that was a bad kid, even though I wasn't a bad kid. And that's a pretty tough experience. And not having a mentor, you know, or support system or infrastructure in place for, um, you know, for high school, I think is puts you to big disadvantage. So I wish that I had more mentors like the ones I had later in life. What would you recommend to other high school students to kind of find that support system so that they're not left in that position where they kind of feel like they're put out to dry? Well, I have recommendations, but I also hope that more and more adults are mentoring, you know, and that's the rest of my life has been spent mentoring. And maybe it is because of this gap that you're identifying that I didn't have mentors that I needed in high school. I would say that every high school student or even earlier should advocate for themselves. Find someone that you connect with and ask them to be your mentor. There's nothing wrong with asking for that. And I would say that 99% of the time you're going to get the response of someone wanting to support you and help. But in that 1% that you don't, you don't want to be mentored by that person anyway. So if you get a no, then just move on and don't let it convince you that you shouldn't try again, right? That I think at the end of the day, you want to just find 
people that are supportive and caring and may have an interest that you have and ask them to, to mentor you. That's, that's the advice I would give. And never be shy. It's easy to say, but if you just say, what have I got to lose? What have you got to lose? And everyone wants to be asked and likes to be considered someone who would be able to give good advice and mentor. And so there's no question that just going for it and asking is what I'd recommend. In the long run, if you were to look back at your high school self and kind of change anything about it, what would you change? I'm sure there's a lot of things that would change. I definitely wouldn't try out for cheerleading, for one thing, <laughs> because I had no skills there. And, you know, in the end, at the end of the day, I probably didn't really want to do that anyway. But that may have made me who I am, so maybe I wouldn't change that. Um, I would say that I would have been a little more serious. I would have... I had a lot of fun and perhaps pushed the limits more than I'm than I'm sharing. And not that I ever got into trouble, but I probably could have been a little more serious perhaps about school and maybe that would have made a difference for I'm not I'm not sure, you know. I think having a different journey made me who I am. And so if I had gone through a more straight path because I was more serious, then I probably wouldn't be who I am today. So I'm not sure I would change anything. That's a good question. I have to think about these questions ahead of time because some, and maybe it's better to be off the cuff, but I probably wouldn't change anything. Well, I don't think I would change anything. Do you have any stories of pushing the cusp that you want to share? I jumped off my roof quite a bit, snuck out with my friends, you know, things like that. We were on a second, I was in a two-story house in Los Altos and we used to do this roll, you know, we'd jump off the roof and then we'd roll on the grass and my friends would pick me up and we'd, you know, go just run around town, have fun. We used to go pool hopping. We used to, you know, that was the run around Los Altos Hills and jump in people's pools randomly and their lights would all go on at two in the morning that they'd hear someone in their pool and then you jump out and you run to the next house. And My brother almost burnt down all of and with all the fires, this isn't even funny, but the lighting of firecrackers and, you know, doing fireworks. In the old days, we could do fireworks. And I'll never forget my mom being on our property with the hose, you know, trying to keep the fire off of our house. You know, those are things that you probably would change if you could change. If you weren't a, a ding-dong kid who's out, uh, you know, up near the apricot orchards lighting up firecrackers. Those aren't things that I would change. Those are things that I'm about to do now. You just <laughs> there <said> you go. <laughs> Running across 280 when you could run across 280 and going over to the the quarry. There was a quarry over there. We used to run, you know, but it was just so fun. Like life was easy then. You know, we just run across the 280 and run into the quarry and jump off these huge like piles of rocks. And After your time in high school, you attended UCLA. You went to Stanford for your fellowship. You went to Georgetown University of Medicine, and then you did residency at Beth Israel DeConces Medical Center and Harvard University Beth Israel Hospital. That's a really large educational commitment. Can you, can you talk about this process for you, especially focusing on the time when you kind of didn't get into the school that you wanted to in that period in between? Absolutely. So the not getting into medical school, I actually, I had gotten waitlisted the first time I applied after UCLA, I had gotten waitlisted at George Washington. 
And, you know, the the number of medical schools there are in the U.S. are, are limited. And so even when I was applying, which is not as rigorous probably as it is now, you know, there's going to be limited spots. And so at the end of the year, I still didn't get a spot because some, not enough people moved schools. And so ultimately, I didn't have a medical school to go to. So I had to regroup. And my regrouping was to think about, you know, what am I going to do next? I never wanted to go home and live at home, given everything I just shared with you about, you know, <laughs> love my dad, but he was a disciplinarian. I didn't want to be under that uh, in that environment again. So took an internship at Amgen, a biotech company, and learned molecular biology. I had a great time. You know, it was, again, I feel like my whole career experience and career journey was around enjoying myself. So if you enjoy what you do, if you pick things that you love and you go in with the thinking, this is going to be fun and not a chore, then it never really feels like a huge commitment. You know, it doesn't feel like this long journey that you're describing for me to get from A to Z, you know, to have a medical degree. So I went and was doing research in the lab and had a great time. And I learned that, okay, I never would have thought I was going to do research and do a PhD if it weren't for the fact that I did not get into medical school and had an opportunity to go and work in the lab. I wouldn't be doing the research that I'm doing right now. I wouldn't have had the impact in my career in developing vaccines for patients. I opened a a manufacturing facility. I helped them to open a manufacturing facility at Stanford to make um, vaccine therapies for cancer patients, you know, over 15 years ago or, you know, in that time frame. I developed innovative immune therapies for all kinds of different cancers during that time that I was in the lab. And I even developed a melanoma vaccine in the 80s that was one of the first antibodies, a chimeric antibody, and one of the first PCR machines way back when I was at UCLA right after college. So none of those things would have happened if it weren't for the fact that I didn't get into medical school. And that just gave me a totally different perspective. Then, you know, the idea that I would do this joint degree and do an MD and a PhD uh, was all because of this time that I had, this three-year period after college that I hadn't planned for. But I was able to, you know, to carve out that time to do some research that was impactful enough that I had publications. I went to Northridge, Cal State Northridge, and did some graduate classes. So I did molecular biology and biotech and this, you know, and so that I actually had a whole new GPA that I could add, you know, on top of my UCLA GPA. Then I could have a a different post-grad GPA, which, you know, added to my ability to get into medical school. And, you know, and my experience then applying to med school after that was totally different and very positive, but it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't a straight journey. And ultimately, throughout my entire career and throughout my, the whole experience of going to medical school and to residency and you know, doing the internship, the residency in internal medicine, doing a fellowship, doing a postdoc in the lab, every single one of those experiences was positive. So I never really felt like I was in school. It was just, you know, it was, they were great experiences. You know, I, w- I won't say every single day was perfect and positive, but just overall, I think that 
You know, if you view it as this isn't really school or a job, it's something I enjoy. Like I enjoy, I enjoy every day. I've enjoyed every day through my whole career. And, you know, I think that that's, that's pretty lucky. Earlier, you mentioned that in this time period, you had some mentors. Can you talk about any, any stories from these mentors or any major takeaways that you had? So I had a mentor at UCLA in the 80s when I had gone back to UCLA. After I graduated, I went to Amgen for a couple of years, and then I went to UCLA. So about a year and a half each place to do research. And my mentor at UCLA, she was the head of the Molecular Biology Institute. Her name is Sherry Morrison, and we still keep in touch. She was just an incredibly dynamic woman who brought her whole lab from Columbia and moved to UCLA, brought, you know, and and then was heading up the Department of Immunology in the Molecular Biology Institute at, at UCLA. And she was just an incredible person and showed me you can do anything you want. She actually taught me what a strong scientist I was and what a strong researcher I was, which I never would have known if it wasn't for having the time that I spent in the lab. And she told me that I was wasting my time to go to medical school because I was such an incredible researcher. Why would I do medical school? I wanted to do the medical training because I felt like there's important scientific questions that we need to address and that we can do that with the PhD and being able to develop new technologies and new therapies for cancer. But if you didn't understand the clinical questions that were, that were out there to be asked, then you wouldn't be able to focus your research efforts in the right way. So for example, you know, if you understand the, that HER2-positive breast cancer patients are not cured and that we still need therapies to cure these patients, and then you have the research understanding that HER2-positive is a target that we can develop an antibody against, that you can put those two things together and have a very impactful, you know, the, your impact is greater, right? Your impact for patients and for solving medical issues that are, you know, high unmet needs for patients and, you know, that are there that you can then solve it with the tools that you have from the research experience that, you know, that I brought to the table. So it's a very unique position for me to be able to take. And so my mentor helped me to see that I was a really strong scientist and that I shouldn't, you know, I had been told for so long by my brother that I was dumb or my, you know, when he tutored me, he said, don't take any more math. You're, you know, he was kind of joking, but he, he definitely used that word. At some point, I think especially with girls, they think they're not capable of sciences, you know, of doing the science or doing the math. And, and so to be told by a strong female successful mentor that you have capabilities and more in the sciences, I think, you know, that went a long way for me. During this time period, how did you kind of maintain other social relations too? Not just with people who kind of gave you advice, but with friends and, and other. Yeah, so maintaining social relationships, I think, was critical for me. I think you have to decide. It's easy not to do anything, right? To just focus on school and to, it's easier to just focus on school and, you know, especially when you're busy and be a homebody and a hermit. It takes more effort to actually do things and go out. And, you know, I felt very strongly about that life balance and having fun. So I just, 
did it. You know, I made sure that on the weekends I, you know, was with friends unless I had a big test that I had to do. And I made sure that I had coffee with people or I went out to a party with friends, that I had parties. You know, I had, you know, my lab. It may be that a lot of the people I socialized with were people from my work, but I would have the whole lab over for potlucks and barbecues. And, you know, I hosted a lot of things because I enjoyed that, but I made sure to continue to have social relationships and stay networked and enjoy people and not get caught up in just working hard. Because I think that, you know, you're just healthier and happier if you are able to maintain those social relationships. And I think everyone can. And if you can't, if you're not able to enjoy yourself and still have fun and go do things, then you're probably not in the right, you know, you're not, you're not doing the right thing, right? You're, you're working too much and that may be not the right path for you. Does that make sense? The same question as kind of that high school question. Do you have any regrets with regard to this time period in your life? Anything you would change? I don't think so. I don't think I have any regrets from that time, you know, going through working at Amgen or decisions I made. Not really. I mean, I've had a chance to look back at a lot of my life. When I, when I work with patients and I, I, they um, are diagnosed with cancer and I ask them to really think about what matters the most to them because they may have limited energy or limited time, you know, and that they really should think about prioritizing what matters to them. And a lot of my patients look back and say, you know what, I'm a, a CPA or I'm, you know, in business and, you know, or, you know, or law or... or and I don't want to target, I shouldn't target any one field. It's not about one field, but they just may have decided that that didn't have a lot of meaning for them and they wanted to pick something that had more meaning for them. So I, I've always done that myself. But then when I was diagnosed with cancer myself, I think, you know, it's even more real. You look back and, and you ask yourself, have I been prioritizing what really matters? And at the end of the day, my answer is yes. You know, I don't think I'd change a thing. I feel very lucky. Even if my path was longer or, you know, not direct, I wouldn't change a thing. So would you say that your diagnosis with cancer really didn't change your life in that drastic of a way? I would say that it changed my life. And there's some particular times that it changed my life. When I was first diagnosed, I didn't change what I was doing. So I continued to work through treatment, which was very hard. I was on a year of interferon, high-dose interferon, which is an incredibly hard therapy and worse than chemo in many ways. But I continued to see patients because it kept me whole. And I continued to work at Stanford. I was at Stanford at that time and continued to do research. I was only at Stanford. I wasn't at Genentech at that time. But then there were some situations that, made it very hard for me. One, when I was working on the inpatient service, I had a, a melanoma patient who was had a very similar stage to my, my cancer. And she had three kids. Well, she had two small children and then she was pregnant with her third. And so, you know, I could relate to her in so many ways that I was taking care of her as being the doctor on the inpatient service at the time. Because as oncologists, we cover everybody's patients. I don't just do breast cancer. 
So she was pregnant. They couldn't do any testing, and she was having shortness of breath. She'd had an early-stage melanoma, and she came in. They had to deliver the baby early. The baby had a 10% risk of having melanoma because what they found when they looked at all of her scans, once they could do it, she had melanoma in her lung and in her brain and in her bones and, you know, throughout her whole body. And even in the placenta, she had, you know, she had melanoma covering the placenta. So there's about a 10% risk you can, you know, pass that to the, to the baby. And then she died within 10 weeks of her diagnoses. And, and that was very hard for me to handle, you know, just having gone through my own journey and, and kind of, you know, it set me back a bit. And it also shaped my decision to move my career to a slightly different, to needing to do more. We need to do more, okay? We, need, we needed to have more patients that are cured I personally knew that it was going to be hard for me to continue with the approach I was taking to see patients that included melanoma patients and the that I was having to take care of because I couldn't compartmentalize as easily. And so for that reason, and also the reason that I wanted to have a bigger impact for patients, I moved, I took this job at Genentech. And so I have been able to, you know, have a greater impact and have an impact for thousands and maybe millions of patients. But yes, when you asked, did it, you know, did my diagnosis change maybe the journey I took? I think it did. You know, that's one example right there where my decision making to to go to industry, which I never thought I would do. So I was a purist and I'm an academic and I'm always going to be at Stanford, you know, and never look at another non-academic opportunity because, it, you know, there's too much business in industry, right? And I'm not a business person. I was in it for, you know, for patients. But it was the right decision. It feels like a good decision. I have had a tremendous impact in, in changing the outcome of a lot more patients' lives by being in the job that I'm in currently. And I've maintained my Stanford role for as long as I possibly could in terms of patient care. When I had my recurrence of my melanoma, I couldn't maintain my patient care because I was taking care, if I am trying to take care of patients that I'm doing my own treatment, you know, it's just hard. You know, it's hard for the patients to be able to count on me. I felt like I needed to be 100%. So, you know, being on chemotherapy myself and then trying to take care of patients didn't seem right. So about three years ago, I stopped seeing patients and I still support Stanford in a lot of different ways with my adjunct clinical faculty position, but I'm not seeing patients currently. So, you know, I guess I hope that answered is in terms of has it had an impact? It has had an impact from, you know, the personal side, but I think ultimately I'm still totally focused on making, changing clinical outcomes for patients with cancer on moving the needle on having curative therapies. There's no question that that hasn't changed, but I'm doing it in a slightly different way. Now, let's talk a little bit about your family life, like your current family life. Mm -hmm. So you have three kids and you're happily married. What do you see your job as a parent is? My job as a parent, I think the biggest job is to support the social and emotional well-being of my children. So I think that's really critical. And that means that they're, you know, fed and have a happy 
home as much as possible that we you know that providing love and support to my kids there are a lot of different jobs that i think are are critical for both parents but those i think are the most important and how do you build that happy home i think i just try to be the person i am and i try to be a good role model number 1 i don't think i do it consciously you know i think it's just sometimes consciously i have to remember to pull myself out of something if i am getting frustrated or challenged you know that we're lucky to have two parents and one can see that the other is getting frustrated and we then remind you know we tend not to be frustrated at the same time which is good so i can tell Joey's dad Jeff you know it looks like you're getting a little frustrated why don't we switch you know not every family has that and i think all the studies really show that you only need one parent for kids to be you know to really grow up being healthy and happy so as long as that one parent can keep it together but it's harder right if you're a single parent so we're pretty fortunate that we're you know we're able to tag team as i call it but i try to be a good role model i i think that's the best i've been able to do i i just try to be the person i am and so far you know that's worked well i think when the kids were little it was hard when i worked for them to understand that 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 was okay or that might even be a good thing because they didn't see me at every single event but i tried to be at as many many school activities or everything that i possibly could as long as i had a you know enough warning i could do that and my clinic and genentech and everyone has supported me with that which has been great you know my friends support me but i think it takes a village so it's you know as as parents we do the best we can and then we know we also have teachers and we have other caregivers so how do we maintain a happy home i think is just you know if you're unhappy then you're not going to have a happy home so if i feel happy then I'm lucky and I think we're more likely to have a happy home. What advice do you give to your kids when they face hard times? I usually listen. I think first, you know, I think that that's something that is is hard. You always want to problem solve for your kids, but then try to listen first and do what, you know, help them to problem solve as much as possible is the, you know, the first thing I try to do. And when they need advice or support, I can jump in and provide you know the the likelihood is most problems are most problems will be gone you know that it always seems big at the moment but everything in my entire life I realize you can overcome and it may be that they'll I'll hit a point where that's I mean even now you know facing cancer you know maybe that's not entirely true because I may not overcome this right so but at the end of the day almost everything in life you can overcome and will be behind you and you'll be able to look back and say that was okay i didn't need to you know to have stressed as much as i did or become as unglued or as upset as i did and and i wish that i hadn't you know a lot of times you look back and you say i wish i hadn't gotten so upset by that because it really i just lost 3 days of my life because of it right i also think about that as a as a patient you know you don't want to every day's a gift you want to you know take advantage of that and you don't want to lose that time so in terms of advice you know my goal is to listen and have 
my kids try to figure it out themselves if they can with my support. And when they need advice, it's really to say, we can, we've got this. We can definitely get past this together. And I've had, you know, I, Nick's had some rough times. You know, we've had some rough, all three kids have had some rough times, you know, along the way. And I'm not saying, you know, in comparison, a lot of people have things that are harder, but, but at the time they, you know, certainly felt like these things were pretty big and we've gotten past them. Do you have any other stories that you want to tell that you think might help other people or are really important to you? So, I mean, I guess I would just share that obviously going through challenges like I am currently with my cancer and trying to do one treatment after another to try to just continue to be here for my kids and be here for myself and and do it with grace and dignity and joy has been you know, really the what I've tried to do through this cancer journey and to continue to make an impact despite the fact that I'm having to deal with this illness. If I if I stayed home and didn't, you know, and I and I just decided to maybe be selfish and say, oh, I'm just gonna take care of me and be at home and not continue to to try to find curative therapies for cancer or work on what I'm currently doing in my research, that I'd be unhappy ultimately, I think, you know, and it's the right thing to do to to continue to push and try to push the envelope and try to have an impact. And I don't regret it one bit. I think, you know, the the main thing is that I want I want to be here for my kids when they need me. And that has to be my number one priority. And I hope that I am. But at the end of the day, don't I, I do say, and Joe, Joey has a tattoo, and he laughed. He didn't believe that this is my motto, but my motto is that you have to have faith. Your faith is greater than your fear. So always saying your faith is greater than your fear. And I think you guys got that from your teacher, but he had something from the biology teacher. And I say that all the time, you know, and like to my friends at least, and maybe I haven't said it to Joey and maybe he hadn't ever heard me say that before, but your faith has to be greater than your fear. And I hope that we can give that to all of you, you know, that whether it's, it's, and it's not necessarily a religious thing, it's just the faith in people and humanity and life. I mean, for me, it is somewhat of a religious thing, but it's more just believing that there's something bigger than what you're fearful of, you know, something that's better and positive and that you can hold on to. And, you know, that you always have friends and you always have people that want to be there that are supportive for you, whether it's a teacher and going and advocating for yourself, finding that teacher that matters to you, that you have a good relationship with, or you want to develop a relationship with, and don't, you know, be fearful of that. And make those friendships, those relationships matter so that you, you know, you always have that support system. I've been incredibly lucky to have this wonderful support system. And I was in doing a transplant in December and I had a picture of all these women who were at mass for me the day, like at the exact moment that I was doing, getting the cells put into my system, that they were all there supporting me. And it wasn't about the religion or it was much more about the community and the support system that I had. But every one of you has that. Every one of you has people who want to be there for you, whether you know it or not. And, you know, when people feel that they're 
failing or they feel isolated or depressed or anxious, I hope that you'll remind yourself that there's always, there's always someone there who loves you, who wants to help you. Ellie, thank you so much for your time and your story, your true inspiration. Please check out our website and look at our other podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of The One Hour Intern, I learned from John Lilly. I got my first cinch notice in the second quarter, which was an F in English. And by struggling mightily, I got it up to a C minus <laughs> minus, the worst grade I ever got. But it was, as I say, a learning experience. And the skills that I developed in terms of writing served me well. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time. Thanks. Thanks.